Hello, and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. Okay, listeners, this is the third and final episode of our three-part series all about the use of fire as a land management tool. If you haven't already heard parts one and two, I recommend you listen to those first. But here's a quick recap. In part one, Mike Saxton and Calvin Maginell visited with me about the science and history of fire on the landscape. In part two, we focused in on how fire has been and is still being used at the nature reserve and even talked through what a burn day looks like. If you heard that episode, you'll recognize a lot of those walkthrough elements at the end of this episode as we take you to the field with audio clips from a prescribed burn here at the nature reserve. But before we get to those field recordings, let's first hear more from Mike and Cal as they share some final thoughts about fire as a land management tool and some ideas about how you can become more involved with prescribed fire, whether you're interested in exploring fire science as a career or you're a landowner interested in using fire on your own property. So without further ado, here are Mike and Cal once again to wrap things up for us. Thank you for joining us for Making Friends with Fire, Part 3, Final Thoughts and Field Recordings. Okay, great. So before we go further, then I have to ask, what is your favorite story from a burn day? My favorite experiences on the fire line um, are at night. If you can picture a campfire that you were around, and then you can string that for, you know, 50 miles along a, a hillside, there's just something truly spectacular about seeing uh, all the trees and everything all silhouetted from below with, with a nighttime fire. And I do think that it's something that in the right locations um, can be a really effective way to burn because humidities increase at night. Usually the wind dies down. Um, you can you can experience some different conditions in a, in a unit that you might not normally have during the day uh, when the fuels are heated by the sun and you have the, the typical warming trend of the, um, of the daytime temperatures. So, you know, at night things are cooling off. So you can burn a unit that you might not want to have burn very intensively. Um, you, can, you can conduct that fire by starting in the late afternoon and moving into the evening with, with that burn period instead of so, you know, starting in the morning and having it get more intense as the day goes on. Yeah, I think the the part of of fire that I most appreciate um, is that I think we have to we have to remind ourselves that fire is a tool, right? And we use it with very specific objectives in mind. And really, it's to help us manage for native biodiversity, right? So, so fire helps keep our areas diverse and lush and happy. And really, I think the, the the best aspect of it is that next spring, right? That's when the true reward comes to fruition. I mean, yes, it's it's nice to do a burn and to feel good about it afterwards and to be have good camaraderie with you and your team. But it's really those you go on a spring walk through a, a recently burned glade or a nice uh, open oak woodland, and you see that's when the fruits of your labor really. Um, are evident. And so our, our burned landscapes um, that are thriving with native flora and native pollinators and native uh, flora and fauna of all kinds, that's that's the true um, reward. And that's really the best part about doing fire at the nature reserve. All right. So so you're you're speaking a little bit to like what happens after a burn. So let's talk a little more specifically about how does land recover from a burn? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so we've, we've talked a lot about the history of fire um, on the landscape and, and these systems, as as we've kind of hit home on, is they're, they're fire adapted, they're fire evolved. They need fire, right? Our savannas, our woodlands, our wetlands, our prairies, they all, our glades, they all thrive with fire, right? So uh, in the absence of fire, our open, sunny, sunlit woodlands and prairies turn brushy, they turn dense and dark, and we lose those sun-loving species pretty quickly. And and with those sun-loving plants, we lose the insects, we lose the, the birds that rely on them, and there are these kind of cascading effects. So fire is is kind of a, a key or a, a keystone, if we want to be technical, right? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a process that delineates, determines, defines these natural communities, right? So um, anytime there's no fire, we see it and we experience it right away, right? So we need fire. The beneficiaries, I mean, are are our native flora, and it cascades throughout all all of our ecosystems, all of our ecotypes, all of our habitats, flora and fauna, left and right, are typically are usually beneficiaries of of our of our uh, fire program. Well, and and one of the ways that we can really be thoughtful and uh, and and plan well and plan accordingly is most of our fires occurring during the dormant season, right? So. Uh, while it is ecologically appropriate to burn in the growing season, it's definitely not outside the you know the natural history of fire to have growing season burns. We don't typically burn in the growing season. We're typically doing all of our burning after the first hard frost of the year. Uh, once our reptiles, amphibians um, have all gone dormant, once most of our insects are dormant for the year and most of our native plants are all dormant for the season, that's when we're doing our burning, right? So if it's 40 degrees, the odds of there being a turtle above ground are slim to none, right? So we can do everything we can, right, to limit detrimental impacts to our native flora and fauna. And I, I think one thing to, to kind of, I hear from people all the time, oh, you use prescribed fire to kill invasive plants, right? And I said, not not really. I don't know where people get this idea, but I hear it from people all the time. It's curious because some of our uh, worst invasive species, something like um, Sericea lespidiza, right? White and yellow sweet clover. They're legumes. They like fire. Fire actually stimulates their germination. And after a fire, you actually get more of some of these uh, invasive, non-native, problematic plants. So it's not necessarily true that we use fire to kill invasive plants. However, um, something like honeysuckle or privet, some of these non-native shrubs, um, if it takes them three years to start producing fruit and we do fire every three years in a woodland, we can, uh, fire doesn't kill the shrubs outright, but it kills them above ground. So a honeysuckle shrub will get set back every time we do fire. And if we are burning on a three-year rotation in our woodlands, we are effectively stopping the spread of this invasive plant and we're keeping those populations in check. So we definitely use fire to help us better manage invasive species, but we don't necessarily use fire to kill invasive plants. Okay, so it's management versus eradication. Well, and I think a good example too is if we have an unburned prairie and you go out there the next spring, next summer, it's pretty thick with vegetation, uh, last season's vegetation that is, it can be kind of hard to find some of those uh, problematic invasive plants like crown vetch or sericea, right? Now, if that prairie is burned and all that biomass from last season is removed, we can be much more effective at finding, treating, and controlling those invasive plants than if it wasn't burned. Okay. So Mike mentioned that we burn in the dormant season. And um, this is a there, there's some controversy associated with how to define um, 
burning and, and just prescribed fire in general in um, in the Midwest. In other places, the controversy revolves around different timing. But here in uh, in Missouri and, and in this area, we've um, we are are lucky to have a, a very in depth dendrochronology lab um, that's. Um, that was built by Richard Guyette and others at the University of Missouri, Columbia. And so one of the things that they've been able to kind of determine relatively clearly is not only can you figure out the age a tree was when it received a fire scar, but you can actually figure out what time of year it was based on where on the growth ring the fire scar occurs. So with that evidence, we've been pretty confident in understanding that historical fire up until uh, the the more recent colonization events, um, historical fires occurred quite consistently right after the tree um, was going dormant for the year um, or around the dormancy. Mm -hmm. So the um, tree rings are, are made up of early wood and, and kind of middle wood and late wood, which is the size of the vesicles. Um, and so the late wood occurs when the tree is going dormant for the year because it's obviously not putting on diameter growth because it's either lost its leaves or it's not, um, in the case of a pine, it's just not doing a lot of, uh, of growth because it's winter, basically. And so if the fire scar occurs during that time of year, then you can say, well, this fire probably occurred during the time that the tree was going dormant. And that's what, that's what they've observed. And then there was a shift um, post-colonization toward um, more burns that occur a little more when the tree is doing that diameter growth. And there are some interesting tree physiology things associated with that. So the colonizer mentality is a little bit more extractive in regards to resources than indigenous um, lifestyles. And so one of the things that we, um, especially timber companies, are really concerned about is fire scarring the tree bowl of, um, of tree species that they want to harvest. Um, and it's ironic that when trees are putting on diameter growth, which is more like early spring, um, right before leaf on, before you see the visible leaves when they're still buds, that's when the tree starts putting on its diameter growth. That's also when the bark is thinnest, right? Because the, the tree bowl, the, the trunk of the tree is actually swelling as it puts on that diameter growth. That's when it has cracks in it because it's swelling. If we burn then, there's probably, just based on, on simple physiology, the tree might be more susceptible to scarring that time of year. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's some things that like we ironically do in, in regards to fire that actually don't match well with what was done historically. Um, and that also plays out in the ground floor of vegetation. So a lot of our warm season grasses are quite comfortable with a burn that occurs in early growing season. Um, and so I'll define early growing season, or we define here at the nature reserve, early growing season would be when the elms and maples bloom. That's usually in conjunction also with when the spring ephemerals like spring beauties are blooming. Um, and that's when we choose to end our fire season. But that doesn't mean that everyone else ends their fire season that time of year. And the warm season grasses are comfortable with, with fire that time of year, but a lot of the native forbs, so the flowering plants that aren't grasses, um, that are still herbaceous plants tend to be set back by, um, burns that occur, um, that time of year, like after, after, um, 
the leaves are just coming out. So that's one of the the ways that here we try and, and look at the state of the science and try and use as much as possible what we know about the historical fire regime to influence our current fire regime because we do have a very strong focus on um, native plant biodiversity and um, the ensuing uh, community that comes with a very diverse native plant community. Um, but if you are choosing to manage for something else, um, like warm season grass, then, you know, burning later in the, or into the early growing season might be the right thing for you. Um, we just choose not to do that here. Yeah. Typically the way I, I talk about the timing, the seasonality of our fire season is, you know, Cal mentions we should be doing more autumnal burning, right? That, that, right after the first frost, right when the leaves are coming down, that early November is kind of a really sweet spot for getting a lot of fire on the ground. That's when historically a lot of fire would be occurring. Um, but right now we're getting ready for that, that sweet spot, but we're still collecting seed in our prairies, right? We're doing ecological restoration where seed is a big part about what we do. And if I burned off all the prairies, I would be missing out on dozens of species and pounds and pounds of seed that I want to collect. So I, I just have to weigh that, right? And in, in what our objectives are and what our um, primary areas of focus is. So right now we have been mowing fire breaks. Not every year are we doing that in October. Sometimes we're just super busy with a, a grant funded project with a very specific uh, initiative that we're undergoing. And it might be November 1st. We say, shoot, we haven't even prepped a fire break yet and we should be getting fire on the ground now. So fire tends, uh, we burn a little bit more in kind of the January, February time slot than in kind of that November time slot, not by design, but by default, right? If, uh, if whatever we don't get done in, in the, the fall autumnal season, we're going to try to get done in that right after the first of the year. So we end up doing the bulk of our burning, not the bulk, but you know, maybe, maybe 60, 70%, I guess, in, in that kind of January, February time period. Um, and I'd rather have it be the inverse. I really would, but there's sometimes those realities that we run into. And so we, so this year, you know, we've been mowing fire breaks early. We've been prepping our gear earlier. We're doing what we can to try to get that that fire on the ground as early as possible to more mirror those historic uh, seasonality of timing of fire. Okay, awesome. So, Cal, you're involved with research here, and you work with some of our local institutions and researchers who come out. Have what sort of research has been done that's related to fire, or maybe have there been findings? by researchers here at the Nature Reserve that fire is impacting anything that they're studying? So by and large, folks that have an interest in fire are more utilizing the fact that we burn to compare to places that are not utilizing fire as a, as a tool the way we do at the Nature Reserve. So an example of this is uh, there's a researcher from... Um, Champaign-Urbana named Derek McFarland, and um, he has been looking at tick populations in along a rural to urban gradient. And so his rural site is the nature reserve. And then he's been looking at these tick populations um, from here all the way in to the city of St. Louis at various parks and nature preserves and, and similar properties. And um, he has mentioned that we have less ticks here at the nature reserve. And while he doesn't know for sure that that is because of fire, um, there's a, a pretty strong correlation between um, both uh, 
the obvious death of ticks by the flame, but also um, later on, because there's more sunlight, because you've removed the mid-story, um, because there's less dead vegetation for the ticks to hide in, ticks are actually most susceptible to desiccation, to drying out. Mm. And so in the natural community that we create that's mediated by fire, we're actually creating a habitat that's less... Um, suitable for for ticks in general and and so there's uh some speculation this is again like i said this isn't the focus of his project so he cannot say oh fire is causing this mm -hmm. but fire is basically one of the few things that happens at the nature reserve that's not happening at these other properties so there's potentially some correlation there that would be an interesting research project for someone though that we would be yeah. happy to support oh you heard it here listeners okay so i know that at the Nature Reserve, we have some partnerships with some organizations who are very interested in helping local landowners put fire on their own private land. And I'll we'll list a few of those in a moment. But first, what in your minds are the most compelling reasons from a private landowner perspective to develop and implement prescribed burning on smaller parcels of privately owned land? Well, as a private landowner, I would say that for me, the compelling reasons are specifically related to both management for wildlife and management for the health of, of that property. Making active decisions to uh, increase the biodiversity means that you're also feeding more critters. Um, and the best way to do that at scale is to utilize fire. Um, not only does it remove whatever dead biomass that's there. It also knocks back the cedar trees and um, helps open the woodlands, which makes for easier hunting. It also makes for um, healthier and more numerous wildlife. Yeah, we get this question um, from visitors all the time, say, oh, I see so many quail at the nature reserve. What, what are you doing for quail? I say, nothing. Not doing anything specifically for quail, but what are we doing? We're controlling invasive species. We're making sure we've got a lush, robust native flora, and we're, we're using fire. They say, oh, are you doing edge feathering? Which, which for the listeners is when you kind of thin out an edge and you make it so it's not a hard line um, and you kind of make it nice and soft and you kind of put some little gaps here and there. I said, no, we don't, we don't do edge feathering. Fire does edge feathering for us, right? So um, it's the same thing with bucks. People say, oh, I saw a huge, like, man, you guys have big bucks at the nature. So, wow, you know, I'd love to hunt there. You've got big deer. I'm like, what do you, you know, we're not doing anything for deer, but to, to promote their populations or anything like that. Um, in fact, of course, we probably have too many deer. Um, and it's because when we're burning, it promotes our, a good, robust native flora, which is has all these benefits for all these various kinds of wildlife. Makes perfect sense. So there are resources out there for landowners who are interested in putting fire on the ground. Like I mentioned, the Nature Reserve works with a number of agencies and organizations who are pursuing this goal. What are some of those organizations? Earlier this year, we hosted uh, a workshop uh, for private landowners uh, in a partnership with the Missouri Department of Conservation and our local Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever folks. And we had about 30 private landowners come out uh, to do a half, uh, one full day, half day in the classroom, learning about fire, hearing presentations, hearing from various fire practitioners. And then the second half of the day was actually putting live fire on the ground and learning about how to 
um, extinguish an escape fire. So it was a hands-on live fire exercise. And, you know, these were 30 private landowners um, that can go out to their ground now with a little more experience, a little bit more knowledge, and hopefully use uh, this really important tool. And one thing they can tap into are these prescribed burn associations, which are uh, expanding across the state and do a lot of really good work. Yeah, I don't know actually how many we're up to. I think at last count, there were at least six with a couple more in the works. But um, there have been two new ones that cropped up this year. And um, they're starting to... uh, So there's some, at least one down by Springfield, one down by Cape Girardeau, one down um, in uh, Carter County by Van Buren, one up here in Franklin County. There's one down now in uh, Crawford County. They're, they're all over the place. And what they are is it's a group of local landowners that get together. And basically for, I think, the, the yearly membership dues are like $25 a year. Um, and that's, a, that's sufficient to then help pay for the gear that everyone can then utilize, who's a member, to burn on their property. And since one of the things that holds everyone back the most is number of people, and gear, um, this model works really well because for your $25 per year, not only do you get to use the gear, but then the other members of the PBA, the Prescribed Burn Association, will come help you burn on your property. And one of the things that you do need to provide um, in order to be protected under Missouri law um, is you need to have a certified burn plan, which you can write, um, but you also need to have taken the MDC um, or the Missouri Department of Conservation prescribed burn manager class, which is a free class that's being offered now around the state as well. And those two things together will will help protect you from liability concerns during your prescribed fire. And one thing that Missouri has done, which uh, a number of states have done across the country, is they've they've established through the legislature a, a what's typically called right to burn legislation. So this legislation passed the House and the Senate in Missouri a few years ago, and it states that as a private landowner, you have a right to burn your property, and it sets liability limitations, which offer some protection to a to a landowner um, in the case of of something happening during the course of their fire. So, I mean, it is, um, these are steps in the right direction. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, if you get this, any state legislature to agree that, uh, burning is a good thing and a right, a right that, a, that an individual has on their own private property, um, that's a big step forward. Fantastic. So we have talked about private landowners, uh, but let's say we have listeners who are interested in either volunteering with the nature reserve or maybe some other organization or even pursuing a career in fire science or fire ecology. What advice do you have for listeners who would love to be on the fire lines? So we do have volunteers that do, uh, that assist with our fire program, uh, these folks are our kind of tried and true regulars who come out every week. Um, and if if you're listening and you say, I'd really love to be involved at Fire at the Nature Reserve, the first step is really to start coming coming to our volunteer work days, right? Come to see what we're about, how we do things, why we do things. Uh, let us get to know you. As we kind of talked about earlier, it's a, our our fire operations. It, it's a, it's a team, right? There's a lot of trust involved, and we um, we've got a good solid core, and we're happy to bring new people in. Um, so we have work days, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Information about this can be found at the Missouri Botanical Gardens website. Uh, there's a volunteer tab where all of our work days are posted. But that's the easiest way if you ever wanted to volunteer with our fire program is to 
get established as a restoration volunteer first, and then hopefully eventually we can work you in to our fire program. Yeah. So we also will provide training, but that um, doesn't come around all the time. So that's part of the reason that we can't just immediately take on a volunteer, get them trained and have them on the fire line. We only offer that training every two or so years, I think. I know that um, just to the south of the nature reserve is Robertsville State Park, right? Uh, there are a number of our volunteers also assist with the state park program and do volunteer there. Um, so there, there are other agencies um, and organizations doing fire, and, and there are opportunities to get plugged into those. And then in relation to the second part of that question, as far as getting into fire ecology or just wildland firefighting in general, the fire ecology programs that I'm aware of tend to be in the Western states, um, but, but there are a, a fair number of universities that offer, um, they're usually called fire science, but uh, you, can, you can utilize that, uh, the, they have undergrad, undergraduate degrees in fire science that will get you your basic qualifications, which are, are federally recognized uh, firefighter qualifications that then you can use to either join a crew um, to do fire suppression tactics out west, or you can then use to work for one of the various organizations that recognizes those qualifications like the Nature Conservancy or the Forest Service or uh, Fish and Wildlife. All these, all these different organizations recognize those federal qualifications for prescribed fire as well. So I would recommend reaching out through your local fire programs managers um, like, for example, in, in our state, that's the Missouri Department of Conservation. But in other states, the Forest Service often administers those programs. And they can tell you when the next firefighter type 2 training is if you are not going to be able to go through one of the more typical like university pathways to get those, those firefighter qualifications. Okay. So, Mike... Cal, so good to have you both on. I think this was a lot of fun, and I'm sure I speak for our listeners when I say we hope to hear more from you in the future. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Thank you once again to Mike and Cal for helping me out with this episode. If you have any questions about what you've heard from them, feel free to drop us a line, and maybe I'll be able to talk them into a listener Q&A sometime in the future. You'll find links to lobby for that in our show notes. It's nearly winter, and I'm sure some of you are feeling the lack of daylight and maybe a little stress. But it's been shown that spending time in nature gives our physical, mental, and emotional health a boost. The Nature Reserve is open to visitors and offers public programs all winter long. You can find out more about those offerings by visiting our website or social media pages, but as always... I'll also drop links in our episode show notes. Just follow those links to find out more about how you can spend time in nature at the Nature Reserve. Okay, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time to go into the field with the burn crews here at the Nature Reserve. In our last episode, Mike and Cal talked us through what a burn day looks like here. And now you get to experience the sound of a burn day yourself. But first, let's set the scene. The clips you're about to hear are from a prescribed burn that took place on November 17th of this year in an area we call the Pine Savannah. If you would like to see the area that you will hear burning in these clips, just ask our staff at the Visitor Center to show you the Pine Savannah on a map. It's very accessible and easy to see from the loop road, so even if you have limited mobility, 
you can come out and watch the pine savanna recover from this burn, and we hope you will. Okay, let's listen as Mike wraps up the crew briefing. All right, everybody got a radio? Good. Okay, let's caravan out there. So that was a fairly typical briefing. Okay, awesome. Yeah. You know, our briefings, everyone here, they know the site. Sure. The crew is, they've prepped all the lines. They've all eyed every inch of it. We've, right. many of our staff have burned this before. They're so familiar. They're very familiar. So it makes our briefings um, pretty easy. What made me want to burn is one, we have a lot of crew, a good crew, solidly trained crew, experienced crew. We had our fire breaks all prepped, all ready. And so it's like, well, that's, those are some of the biggest variables. Like, how are the fire breaks? How many staff? How, does it, how much equipment do you have? It's like, well, we're good on all that. It's just the fuel and the weather, which of course are two <laughs> extremely important variables to consider. Sure. Okay. So Michelle, this is our test ignition. Okay. And so the things we want to see with the test ignition, we have what we call expected fire behavior, is do we see what we're expecting, right? Is the smoke going in the right direction? Uh, are the winds what we anticipated? Are the fuels behaving like we thought we would? Um, this is your opportunity to ground truth it. And if, if and this is kind of your, your, not the last opportunity you have to, to call things off, but this is where it's like, okay, we thought we were gonna, you know, the forecast said we should have winds out of the north. Well, you get out here and the winds are out of the south or okay. something like that. And it's like, well, okay, glad we tested this. So your test ignition should always be in a size where you can still control it, where you can put it out if you need to. I mean, so again, we're, we're, the smoke is behaving like we thought it would. The winds are like we thought it would. We anticipate the, the leaf litter being pokey. We expect the grasses to burn much more um, uh, actively. So, you know, from a test ignition standpoint, this is confirming everything we thought. Well, I like it. Yeah. This, this is, you know, we're in full, full shade. 65% humidity, and the leaves are, are, we're backing in the leaves, right? Just ring it, full speed ahead, let's go. Send it. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. So we've started our dry fire here over um, in the Pine Savannah. So we've got fire along the loop road. I've uh, got a bunch of staff here. Um, so if uh, I'm sure visitors have been hearing the message. Woodland leaf litter, like woodlands kind of drift, prairies kind of lift. Okay. So part of it is that the heat generated from a prairie, just with the flame lengths being taller with the density of fuels, the smoke goes up better. Sure. Woodlands, woodlands tend to kind of drift sideways because they don't produce as much heat to generate that, that lift. Okay, but, that makes sense. You know, you look at this smoke and it's, it's, it's hard to tell on these cloudy days, but it's, um, we can see that it's moving up. Uh, but it's also, we also see that it's walls moving sideways. Uh, this is a small unit, 16 acres. Um, and the next neighbor is about 
three and a half miles away. So those are things we have to think about. Sure. Like poor smoke lift. How close is the next uh, neighbor? Right. <laughs> All of our visitors have been hearing the message that we're burning. And this is a, a short duration, you know, 16 acres we should be done in. Um, normally, if we were just ringing the fire, doing a typical standard ring ignition, this wouldn't take very long at all. But because we have to go around and work each of these trees, um, sure. it, it'll take us a little bit longer. Donald, this is Mike Donald. Go ahead for Donald. Donald, if you could just hang there at ignition uh, for a little while and uh, just if any vehicles come, tell them what we're up to, ask them to drive slow. I'm on the loop road right now, it's still very visible, um, very safe, but uh, yeah, just give people the heads up, let us know if anyone's coming. Copy that, will do. You can see how you know, our green, the fire's moving through our little mowed green shoulders, sure. right? Yeah. So we've got about 12 feet of gravel. On each side of the gravel, we've got about three feet of perennially mowed green fescue. That is not, it is flammable, but it's not in any way flashy, right? Beyond the green shoulder, we've got a six foot width that we mow so a prairie. We knock that prairie down and we limit the fuel. So we've got a six foot fuel reduction line, a three foot green fescue, a 12 foot gravel, three foot green fescue, six foot mowed down uh, fuels. So it gives us a pretty wide fire break. We feel pretty good about it. And you can see where we are currently, um, we're, called, we're doing what's called built, we're building the black, right? So we're establishing black right now where our igniter is, we've got maybe 20 feet of black. Awesome. We got burps dragged in down to the last pine. Copy, I'm on my way. So Maria, what are you doing? So I am working with our ignition crew and currently I'm just holding and waiting for Cal and the other two to finish putting that those dots around the pine to burn out some of that fuel around those shortleaf pines and try to protect them, keep them from taking just a whole heat wave from our, our fire here. Um, so as soon as he gives me the go ahead and they get all those trees burned around, I'll continue up this flank igniting um, along the edge of the prairie until Cal tells me to hold again. We'll get some good black established again and then they'll catch up putting more dots around more pine trees. Okay. Sounds cool. Thank you. So after the burn, there's a stage. After we've kind of done all the ignition we're going to do, that's the stage what's called mop-up. Mm -hmm. Mop-up is kind of doing the last patrols of the line. If there's any you know, dead trees on fire, you cut them down, you put them out. If there's anything close to the fire break that needs dealing with, that all happens in the, in the mop-up stage. Um, we like to say the mop-up actually starts at ignition. Actually, mop-up starts before ignition. We're, we should be eliminating those hazards from right. having to mop them up. Right? So that's why we're going out weeks in advance. We're cutting down dead trees near the fire breaks. We're going out the day before, leaf blowing around dead trees, uh, raking away the, the fuels from dead trees, all, anything that could be a hazard. Um, hopefully you don't have to do much mop-up. If you've done good prep, there really is no mop-up. That's some, somewhat why we say 
you know, mop-up starts at ignition or mop-up starts in advance of ignition. <laughs> right. Anything that you can do to make the day of operations less stressful, less hazardous, it's time well spent. Um, sure. So, what are you doing, Alex? I am currently working suppression on the mule. We've got a 75-gallon pumper unit. And I'm just holding the line up here as she's making sure Maria's in there putting um, more f uh, fire down to try to get a little bit more black before they do the spotting up around the pines above. So okay, so you're like you're holding. here, yeah, you're hold, you're helping Maria, you're you're backing mm -hmm. Maria up. You've got suppression, you've got the water. Mm -hmm. So and if any, you know, you've got water if you need it. Gotcha. Yep. All right, cool, cool for Justin. That's about it. All right. <laughs> Just out. Fantastic. Very, very chill day. Yeah. It's a good burn to watch a bunch of different techniques happening. Yeah, quick update. Um, me and uh, Phoebe and Josiah are at the last pine um, on this side of the hill. And uh, just wanted to make sure that um, the stuff we're doing is not pressuring the line any more than what we expected. Tell us what you're doing out here. I am out here igniting on the burn. We have been lighting around some of the pines here in the savanna. We're putting what's called dots around them, which okay. is just a singular spot of fire. We're putting those down to try and get some fire built up around the pines and get some black built around it, get some of that fuel consumed before a bigger fire comes in and could potentially damage the pines. Okay. So that is what I've been up to. Um, now I am lighting along our edge and building black along our fire line. Okay, and so like we've heard on the podcast that black is like the buffer zone, right? Mm -hmm. So once the head fire comes through, you've got that buffer zone to kind of give you that extra security that it's not going to jump across the road. All right, cool, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to have the interior crew starting in earnest on the the pines on the very peak of the ridge. They're going to be ahead of everybody um, just in case the fire turns and tries to go in that direction. I kind of doubt it, but you never know. Um, I'm going to work in between the lead igniter on these pines about mid-slope. Um, just wanted to let you know that we're, we're starting in earnest. So you'll see fire in the deep interior of the unit. Good copy. Here's the 11 o'clock weather. We're at 57 degrees, surface winds northwest at 10, sky cover 94. That's going down to 8% by 1 o'clock. So it's 94% cloud cover now, 8% by 1 o'clock. Uh, RH is 67, again going down to 47. Uh, transport winds are out of the north, vent rate 27,000. So now the cows in the prairie up there, we're getting real great smoke with. Dylan copies weather. Yeah, you're my eyes, so um, make sure that we're not getting ahead of you too far with too much with you not having enough black. So like, let me know if you need us to slow down. Good copy. Go ahead, Mike. 
How far do you have to go for ignition to, until you hit the uh, cattle guard until the end point down on, on the loop road? Just curious. Oh, it's hard to tell from here. Maybe 150, 200 yards. Copy, thank you. Um, I'm here trying to buy the trees, the cops and trees in the middle of the unit uh, along the road, and we've got uh, 80, 90, 100 feet of black, things, you know, hardly any smoke on the road. Things look great um, from my vantage. Scal, uh, this is Mike. Uh, would you, what would you estimate how much of our fuels have been consumed, how much of the unit uh, up there on the ridge have you guys taken down? You know the large white oak with a bench under it at the edge of the worker? We are, I don't know, 50 meters from that or less. Um, there's probably 30 more pines to do. Copy. That's great. Nice work. Thank you guys. Looks awesome from the loop road. sun comes out at one o'clock, we're going to be completely wrapped up. <laughs> that feels good. You know, the best part about this, though, is this area that burns, when a prairie burns, two minutes later, there's no smoke, there's no flame, it's secure. Yeah. That's why burning prairies, it, it is flasher fuels, it is a little more, um, in that way, there's a little more inherent risk to it. Sure. But the immediacy of it being wrapped up is what, what really differentiates it from a woodland. Um, woodlands can smolder for days and days and days. A prairie can smolder for about an hour. Right. Yeah, yeah. Good copy, Brake, Dylan, Cal. We are um, done with interior ignition. Hey, firm, I've got uh, Alex and I think Franny are in a mule following behind me. There'll be a couple things in the spray, but everything looks good. Fire really chilled out in the woods. Basically not going anywhere. Here, look at that buck leaving the unit. There's a big buck that just ran out of the unit. Oh my unit. gosh. Yeah, I just saw it. Dylan, I just drove the whole loop road from ignition to uh, the cattle fence, cattle guard, deer fence. Uh, everything as expected, rock solid, looks real good on this whole line. Good copy. Yeah, we're uh, working on this pile right now. I think it's pretty much secure, but yeah, the unit's wrong. At, um, let's meet at ignition and do that, but uh, stay on the line, keep your eyes on as long as we need. So why don't we say uh, it's noon on the dot right now, what about 1210 at ignition? Uh, Dylan, does that work for you? 1210 will work for me. Well, look at that sun. It's about to be full sun here. Perfect timing. I'm, you're right, right as it wraps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that we were making clouds, not making them disappear. They're still... Yeah. Cutting this to make clouds. <laughs> That's a pretty good lift. Pretty straight up too. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of not a lot of surface wind. All right. Well.
Nicely done, everybody. Thank you. Um, my observations, you know, our objectives were to protect the shortleaf pine, which it feels like we did. Our, the hands just switched. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at it. I mean, it's... it's. I mean, in the past, like, 10 minutes. Yeah. No, this from is, this to that, that column is just... Yeah. Um, no, no. Yeah. Other other objectives, right? Were uh, protect the shortleaf pine, which I feel like we did a good job of. Maybe one or two got a little more heat. But that's how how it always goes. Um, shortleaf, a fire, somewhat fire sensitive tree, and big bluestem Indian grass are subject to to some heat, right? I think things went pretty darn smooth. We had the right number of people. The brakes were prepped well. Conditions were moderate, easy, right? I mean, I don't, I, I, I can't. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I thought it was pretty low key, right? That means we pick the right conditions uh, for, for that, to, to achieve that, right? Not to feel stressed out by it and to, to get some good work done. Well, good people, good fire breaks, good equipment, the right conditions. Fire should, should be easy. Like it should be pretty low stress and should be pretty straightforward for us. Um, so why don't we just go around in a circle, say as much or as little as you want. And per usual, if there's anything you want to send an email about, do so afterwards if you want to tell me privately. Right? Okay, listeners, I hope you enjoy listening in on our burn crews as they burned the pine savanna. As you can tell, there's a lot happening during a burn. There are a lot of moving parts, so I'm really grateful to everyone who let me tag along and ask questions. And thank you once again for joining us here at All for Nature. That's a wrap for our podcast for 2023. I hope you've enjoyed this adventure as much as I have and that maybe you've learned a little more about the natural world and our place in it. We hope to return soon. Until then, don't forget to check out the links in the show notes. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and share it with everyone you know. Until then, from all of us at Shaw Nature Reserve, thank you for listening and we'll see you on the trail.